Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and we're delighted that you're joining us for this episode in which we talk about Bothies, hitchhiking, Jack Kerouac, Mars bases, bookshops and photographing the universe with writer Dan Richards and Joyce, Ian and Helena Cochran. Books can often be transporting, but what is it like to undertake a journey for a book? We asked author Dan Richards about his latest book, Outpost, a series of personal journeys where he explores the appeal of far-flung outposts in mountains, tundra, forests, oceans and deserts. Tell us a little bit more, if you would, just about Outpost, the headlines. Where did this book begin? Where did it come from? There were two main reasons I came to write it. The first was my previous book, which was about mountaineering, featured quite a lot of journeys to quite high wild places, particularly in the Alps and the Cairngorms and various other mountain ranges in Europe. While I was writing, but mainly climbing for it, I stayed in quite a lot of high altitude cabins. I had never really considered high altitude cabins or just that sort of thing at all. And they exist and they are places that are really sort of springboards, jumping off points for people who climb up to a certain height, usually above the snow line. And then they are places where those people can begin in the small hours, climbing up the sort of more vertiginous, sharp bits of a mountain, hopefully getting to the top. And then you come back and somebody will cook you rosti. Uh, if it's in Switzerland, they'll give you rosti and a beer and some sausages for, let's say, £4,000. So that sort of thing happened. It set me thinking about jumping off points I hadn't really thought about before. The second thing that happened that set me thinking about it was that we had always had in my various family homes a polar bear pelvis that my dad had brought home from the Arctic just before I was born. And this thing, this amazing object had always been around. And I'd always wanted to write about it because for me, it was this amazing prism of adventure. He'd gone up to Neolisund in Svalbard, so the last land before the North Pole, just before I was born. And he brought back this amazing artefact. For me, it was this object object that spoke of my dad as a young man just before I was born. And I think people are always fascinated by this concept of the world without them. And so here he was, age 30-ish or late 20s, having gone up this amazing, fathomless white scape of dreams and bears and various things. And he brought this thing back. And the more I went on writing my various books, the more I felt that all of my interest in the kind of far-flung places of the earth was possibly kindled by the fact that we had this and other similar kind of objects in the house growing up. We had ice axes, photographs of my dad in various places. He and my mum went off to a Greek island when I was very, very little. I went with them and he helped build a replica of Jason and the Argonauts boat, the Argo. So I grew up in this sort of house where this sort of thing happened, but it always struck me that the polar bear pelvis really was at the heart of all of it. So the Outpost book is a way, I think, of trying to knit these various concepts together of far-flung, exciting places and objects and fascination really for the unknown. I would like to begin with the Icelandic Houses of Joy, just because I think everywhere should have Houses of Joy. Could you tell us a bit more about those? They're interesting structures, some of them incredibly old. They were made as stopping points, almost man-made caves of rock and turf and various things. Over time, they've been rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt, a bit like the ship of Theseus, and uh, some of them now quite famous. And I went to one called Fitanus, and I went there to help renovate it. And in its current form, it was built in the 1930s, but it's on ground that has had many other buildings on it and famously a farm and as we are driving towards it uh, Stefan one of the people who runs the um, Further Fjellag Islands which is the Icelandic 
touring company. We were driving there in his 4x4 and he said, this place that we're going, it's a very haunted place. And I thought, great. Well, I didn't know that, but here we are now, miles and hours from anywhere else, and here we are. And then we got in, and he and another chap who was with us explained that there had been a murder on the farm that used to stand on this site. There was a farmer and his wife and a girl who were looking after animals, and the farmer had tried it on with the girl, and she had not taken kindly to that. So in revenge, he locked her outside in a snowstorm, and she died. And then the farmer's wife discovered this and murdered the farmer to avenge the poor girl. And because of that, this Sina house is a site of restless spirits. And then they showed me a bed, and they said, if you ever sleep in that bed, basically bad things will happen. And I thought, right, great, again, good to know now. And then nothing happened for a week and the house of joy really was a house of joy and you could almost forget the uh, terrible forewarning <laughs> and you could almost think oh just what a beautiful place and oh the work's going well and everyone seems to be getting on very happy and all the time in the background the Jaws theme music was very quietly playing at the back of my head Once you're in a, in a very sort of an outpost you know in the, in the wind the Icelandic wilderness there's not a lot you can do really if you encounter you know a haunted one I wonder about the other things that can't be planned I mean as a travel writer and a adventure you know you you obviously are plotting to a degree and and be a ton of research and and planning but how do you leave yourself open to the magic of serendipity that's an excellent question and it's also you know something that i think you have to be aware of the fact that you often go to these places these landscapes and you are very much taking them on their terms not yours i never think there's that much point going into somewhere like you know the middle of iceland or the middle of the Utah desert, where I went later in the book, with a kind of really strict itinerary of things. For one thing, you will miss out on the happenstantial opportunities you get by not planning everything out down to the nth detail. I don't drive. And often I will go to places where there is no public transport as such. I really throw myself on the kind of kindness of strangers. I think I terrified as many uh, motorists as uh, just by my presence, the sort of like the hitchhiker. Oh, that's the murderer guy, the hitchhiker. I've seen this in films. All of my books, I think, getting to the place you want to go is a big part of the adventure. And I think many people make the mistake of, it's the same with mountaineering. They think that, oh, I'm just going to go to this mountain or this cliff face or whatever, and I'm going to climb up it. And then that will be nice. And that's the end of that. And they forget that you have to physically get yourself to it. You have to walk in, you have to be aware of the weather and things, and then you have to climb it. But then you also have to get home again. You have to walk off the top and various things. The actual outposts in the book, Outpost, are the ends, but then, you know, they aren't the ends in themselves. They're the end of a journey, and the journey is in the book as well. To talk of Utah for a second, I had to get from LA to a Mars base in the middle of the Utah desert. And this had just happened after I'd been to Jack Kerouac's fire lookout on Desolation Peak in the Cascade Mountains in Washington State. And so we went up and we had an adventure there. We met a bear and then I flew down to LA and then I had to get from LA to the middle of the Utah desert. So I flew to Salt Lake City and then in my head was going to get one of these amazing 60s US train that would go down and take me and, uh, you know, it would be wonderful and quite romantic. And that didn't happen because the trains weren't running that month. So uh, I got on a bus and then I got dropped off in a place called Green River, which was where the road on the map I saw curved quite ostentatiously away from the direction I wanted to travel in. Sort of set up shop in an Arby's diner where I met 
a hitchhiker who was heading for Las Vegas and very enthusiastic about that, despite the fact that overnight there had been that massive Las Vegas mass shooting. And he was saying that it didn't matter what happened in the world. Las Vegas had always been lucky for him and very keen, I think, to either become friends or murder me. I wasn't sure which one. And I then at that point broke my own rules, got my phone back out and started in a quite sort of feverish, harassed way, WhatsApping everyone I'd ever met uh, with the question, do we know anyone in America who has a car and might be able to help me because I'm worried about being murdered? I'm like... Hugh Grant stumbled onto the set of No Country for Old Men. And it turned out that I had gone to university with a dinosaur expert who lived only three hours away in America. That's nothing. She couldn't help me, but she had a friend called Amber Bones Cradell. And uh, she drove and picked me up. And I left the Arby's diner and drove down into the Utah's desert with my new friend, just as the kind of cigarette smoking, murderous, beaver style hitchhiker man was smashing his phone to bits and sort of like screaming in the uh, Arby's forecourt. So that was a good escape. And it's excellent for the book, you see. And if I could drive, none of that would have happened because what is often bad in life is good in a book. To answer your question, yes, planning is important. But if you over plan, you don't almost get murdered. You mentioned there, Dan, a little bit just about the kind of the romance of the great wilderness and the and the outdoors and being being at one with nature and so on. But yeah, I think the the book is fascinating on on the idea of the wilderness being a fertile place for madness and for delirium, for loneliness. Give us a bit more detail about Kerouac's time in the wilderness. Jack Kerouac had always wanted to be good in wilderness. He had built this image of himself and and later projected the image of himself as this amazingly capable frontiersman, sort of rugged, bebop, hobo, man-cub fella. And in the mid-50s, he was presented with an opportunity to go into the actual wilderness for a paid stint as a fire lookout on top of a mountain in the Cascade Mountains up towards the Canadian border. He was advised as to how to get this job and things to look out for when he was doing it by his good friend, uh, the poet and fellow Buddhist Gary Schneider. Schneider had been blacklisted because he was a communist, and so there was um, opportunities for other beat poets, apparently, why the National Forest Service thought the best people to man their, uh, you know, fire lookout cabins in charge of sort of making sure that the safety and continued sort of greenness of vast expanses of quite important timber should be the job of, of beat poets. I've no idea, but they were quite they were the people who were free and had time on their hands. And so Kerouac ended up trekking up. I mean, people will have an idea of what a fire lookout is like in their heads maybe it wasn't one of those ones up on stilts essentially it was a four-sided shed more like a conservatory really lots of glasses you might imagine so you can see in 360 degrees you have a turntable in the middle of this um one room and the turntable is a device where you can line up any smoke that you can see on the horizon um and so you can call in on your radio a bearing and then another beat poet on a different mountain will call in a different bearing and suddenly you can triangulate it and the forest service could send in firemen to put this fire out and in Kerouac's head this was great he hadn't published anything to any acclaim as yet in his life he'd had one novel out and it had you know died a death no reviews nothing like that And he was going to go there, he was going to work, he was going to discover the person he wanted to be. And rapidly, that idea began to unravel. Within a fortnight, he'd run out of tobacco 
and was smoking coffee grounds. By the end of his two months, he was a wreck and had gone to pieces to some degree. He had set up a very competitive poker tournament with three or four invisible friends. He'd crawled about in the little attic of his shed. He was revealed to himself as to what he was. And what he was, I think, was quite a social person and a bit of an addictive personality in the sense of, you know, he had certain vices that he needed in order to get by. And so he didn't have the best time. And in the book, I imagine him having a horrible time. But a year to the day that he leaves this position, On the Road is published and his life changes overnight. And suddenly all of his dreams come true. He is a major media celebrity um, and suddenly people can't get enough of him. They want all of his unpublished material. They want him to do jazz records and radio plays and they want to interview him. And suddenly this person who was driven to distraction by the silence and the lack of attention, suddenly he doesn't get a moment to himself. And pretty much for the rest of his life, he is burdened with celebrity. I think it's an interesting thing where he might have looked back at his fire lookout days with a great deal of, I suppose, regret that he didn't make more of it. And it's certainly interesting that he uses this experience four times in various novels and essay collections. You know, he mines it. And in each of his retellings, he himself is a character who is revealed to be more at home, both in his own skin and in that sort of situation than he ever was actually in the reality. And it's the stories that people tell themselves about wilderness and also the stories that people imagine wilderness to be like. That was something I really enjoyed unpacking a bit in the Outpost book because Kerouac, I think, was absolutely blindsided by both the reality of the place he went and also the reality of himself. And almost that idea that without that kind of very bizarre and distressing, I guess, for him experience. Uh, We might not have had that writer, you know, arguably wouldn't have had that output, the celebrity. And I just wonder what wildernesses have given to you or to your writing, either your writing practice, obviously we've got the book, but I just mean the um, less specifically than the book. What has it given or done for you? It's helped me to be slightly more comfortable in disagreeable situations, perhaps, you know, to take the world as I find it. With the lockdown that's happened, you know, a lot of people have been in self-isolation. I found it that I've dealt with it quite reasonably, I think, because it's the small joys in life you can relate to and enjoy having lived in quite Spartan places. So the fact that I haven't been able to travel during these past few months has been a bit of a wrench because I I love moving around. But the fact that there's a sort of serenity to be had and a peace to just, you know, staying still and looking at what's around you to, um, you know, to write letters, to move at a slower pace, perhaps, you know, to enjoy phone calls with people and also have times when you pretty much log off the internet, log off your phone, read more books. I love doing that sort of thing because in a way that's a direct link back to the sort of things I would be doing whilst researching the Outpost book um, and trying to slow down and really sort of connect in a way with other people and with stories. I, I think that's a big gift. I'm quite grateful for that because I know other people have been quite frazzled by the lack of things happening and to move at a slower speed and really appreciate that, you know, you can't control everything, as we were saying about wilderness and landscape. I think that's a good thing, particularly now. Thank you to Dan. Outpost is published by Canongate Books and is available from all good independent bookshops. Speaking of bookshops, Wigtown is a haven for book lovers and we decided to catch up with the fabulous Cochrane family, Joyce, Ian and their daughter Helena to talk about their bookshop Old Bank Books. 
here we are, zooming in, as it were, to wonderful Wigtown um, to speak with the Cochrane family. So could we have a sense for our lovely listeners about who all is there with us? Hello, I'm Joyce Cochrane and I'm the junior partner. I'll pass you to the senior partner. Hi there. Hello, who's this? Ian, Ian Cochrane. And you're the senior partner, Ian. Good. Of all. Apparently, but that, that, that's usually um, tended by guffaws of laughter. So, uh, <laughs> anyway. And who else? Have, we've got someone else there, I believe. I'm Helena, and I'm the daughter of the junior and the senior partner. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe for a long time, Helena, and this will be true for a lot of people who are friends and fans of the festival, that you're actually the CEO of Old Bank Books. Is this correct? Oh, well, I'm known as the CEO. I sometimes get parcels addressed to me by that, so it's an ongoing joke now. Very nice. So you're the seat of par at Old Bank Books. Good to be speaking to the to the high hygiene, as they say. I think a lot of people who are who are listening to the to the podcast will um, have had the good fortune of visiting Wigtown and and your very beautiful bookshop there. But for those that have not in person, could you tell us just a wee bit about Old Bank Books? Where are you in the town? We're next to the county buildings. That wonderful building just at the bottom of the square. Our bookshop is basically two buildings. So the front part of the shop dates back to about 1850-ish, so that's the bank. The back part is 1750 and it was the old customs house. So in those days, in the 1750s or 1760s, they didn't really need planning permission when they decided <laughs> to build the bank. They just slapped a bank onto the, the front of the customs house and moved the pillars. Yeah, so it's a quirky building. It's clearly had a history. It's seen some things, that building, it sounds like to me. Most definitely. <laughs> I think probably Ian's the one to talk about yeah, the history. Well, as Joyce said, uh, the, the oldest bit of it is the, was a customs house back in the days of the Redcoats, which seems amazing because there was so much smuggling along the coast. And so they wanted to have people here to keep an eye on that. I think there probably is a Ruskin connection. I suspect uh, Ruskin must have been here because one of his relatives actually lived upstairs for a while. Ruskin also had a relationship with a woman who lived across the road in a house that's no longer there and she became his companion. So he's probably been in this building, he's certainly been to Wigton. Tell us, in how, so, I mean, it's, it's an old building, but how, and how long has it been a bookshop for? Well, we've had it for 17 years as a bookshop and before that, since, since, since the 90s probably. But when we arrived, but the previous owner had got rid of all their stock and their shelves, so there was nothing. Are you happy to say a wee bit more about how you two found your... This is in pre-CEO Helena days, I imagine, but, but just what brought you two to Wigtown and, and to the old bank bookshop? We used to come down to Newton Stewart down the road to visit Joyce's mum and dad. And obviously, as there was the book town here, we used to pop along and we got to know one or two people. And I kind of had it in my mind, actually, for probably about 30 years that I might one day like to have a bookshop and I saw an advert in the Newton Stewart estate agents. Uh, I didn't tell Joyce about that until we got just on the outskirts of Edinburgh on the way back. I said, well, you know, how do you fancy opening a bookshop? <laughs> <laughs> to my amazement, Joyce said, yes, that's a, that's a really great idea. And I thought, bloody hell. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, 
Um, now, it, it did turn out uh, subsequently that almost certainly the reason why Joyce said yes was that she was pregnant and we didn't realize it at the time. Uh, <laughs> so it was happy hormones and she said yes to anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Helena did have a part to play even then, even, <laughs> even before you knew. So you said there were no shelves, there was no stock. I mean, that's, that's a lot of work. How did you embark on this brave new adventure? I started off by going to auctions, coming back with the car absolutely groaning with books. I started building shelves, you know, a room at a time, and we just worked our way round. Once we were open and people realized we were here, we'd get people turning up with their own carloads of books, and then we'd decide whether we wanted to buy them or not. What would you say is Old Bank's specialism then? I mean, what do your book buyers and readers tend to come and look for? You know, we don't have a particular specialism, but we're kind of big on history, art and music. But, you know, we're a general bookshop, so sections sort of can expand and contract depending on what books we're able to get hold of. And could you say, in maybe, is there any particular stories associated with your time in the bookshop that stand out? Any, any particularly memorable customers or interactions? We had Dylan Moran come in the shop one day, the bookshop owner in Black Books. Amazingly, as that was one of our favourite programmes, Black Books, uh, we didn't recognise him. He went round the shop and we were in our little office going, who is he, who is he, come on, he's somebody, you know. <laughs> I just said to him, are you in comedy? I didn't want to say, are you a comedian, just in case it, he wasn't, you know. And I said, we've seen you somewhere. And he just said, the box. And that was all he said. And then as soon as he left, of course, he really <laughs> <It was. laughs> of course, we were thinking, I hope he's not looking for ideas for the next series. Absolutely. Can I ask you, Ian, but also Joyce then, just a little bit more about what role the shop has in the festival? Because it has a huge part to play. And I know that obviously the festival sort of brings lots and lots of visitors to Wigtown. Well, the festival is just a fabulous time. It just brings such energy to the town. You know, lots of interesting people, lots of interesting speakers. Of course, it's an incredibly busy time for us. I just absolutely love it when the marquees go up. You know, there's an electricity about the place which it doesn't have at any other time of the year. Uh, it's just fabulous. Oh, the festival is when the old friends and new friends hit the town and it's, it's just this great big Wigton family as well. It's a tremendous time and oh, there's just nothing like it actually and it's such a unique festival. There's no other festival, I'm totally biased, but there's no <laughs> other festival like it. I think there's a great pride in the town as well because it's such a community event as well with all the volunteers who are involved and writers or journalists staying in people's homes even. Mm -hmm. you've, and you've hosted people, Joyce, haven't you? You've had people to stay at Old Bank, yeah. Yeah, we've had people stay in. Um, we've also, I mean, way back in 2007, we started to have the tent, the children's tent, at the top of our garden, and then it moved to the bottom part of our garden. The children's festival just got bigger and bigger, and then it's now moved up to the primary school because it has just become such a huge success. But we loved having the children's authors coming into our garden. It was just so magical. We now host the McNeely tent, which is equally wonderful. So you've got all this buzz coming down the side of the building and then, you know, it's usually good weather. We leave the back door open and people will come wandering in from the events and you can feel the passion. It's an amazing time. And I never thought growing up 
in Wigtonshire, I would see a book festival taking place in my home county. And we're going to miss it this year, but, you know, it's going to go online and that'll bring different people as well. I think that's one of the very interesting things about Wigtown. It's that kind of reputation beyond, you know, like the I'm, I'm thinking of how a digital experience will hopefully just bring, you know, in the, in the slightly longer term, even more people to come and visit it in person. And I'm thinking, I think, specifically of something like Open Book as well. And I know that you also have a role there, Joyce, with Open Book in the in the town. Do you want to say a wee, a wee bit about that and what specifically you do with that particular amazing initiative? It, it is a, a really terrific thing. Well, and for the past about six months or so, I've been involved in meeting and greeting people who arrive at the Open Book. And I just make it part of my routine to just walk them around the town and introduce them to all the, the different shops and make sure, you know, that they're comfortable and uh, if they've got any questions. And the number of wonderful people, even before I was just one of the volunteers beforehand, just popping up. And we've got a, a wee group of volunteers um, who who are regulars, like Renita will go in and offer a hug with, you know, mm-hmm. Bonnie Bell and Nanette will make her shortbread and she'll take her shortbread up and uh, the bookshop band, if they're in town, they'll pop in and just a whole load of folk will just pop yeah. in to see the new booksellers. But last year, um, we've kept in touch with with people over the years. You do. They're just wonderful people that you meet through the open book. And last year, we got contacted by booksellers who had been like three years ago to the open book, uh, Fred and Cathy. They came to stay with us and they volunteered during the festival. And that is just the power of the open book. And just last week, we received a parcel from one of the last open book residents uh, before the festival company had to close temporarily the bookshop, the open, the open book bookshop. And that was a parcel of goodies from Yiling in Taiwan. And she was also a photographer. And I think she's a bookseller as well. And she had done this portrait project with people just popping into the bookshop. And she's made a book and she's dedicated this photographic record of their time to the people of Wigton. I can't mm-hmm. wait for those doors to open yeah. and take that book up to where it should be because people are so welcoming and mm-hmm. the, the power of books that international exchange is just amazing. You just mentioned about opening the doors and I know that the bookshops there will be, if they haven't already opened, you're all thinking about it. And I just wonder how Old Book is girding itself for the reopening. Well, I'm, I'm looking right now at the space where the Perspex will be hopefully mm-hmm. next week. Ian has created bookcases back to back at one doorway. We've got three doorways into our office actually and we've got a door to the back of the office. We will be here to welcome people as usual. You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be lovely to see folk again. Uh, miss the open bookers, obviously. I don't know quite when that will be taking place again. I miss my the U3A people, the University of the Third Age Literature Group, who come regularly twice a month to the Old Bank. There's about 16 of them. They've been meeting here for over 10 years. So mm-hmm. we'll be having the usual, you know, hand sanitizer at the door and yeah, there'll be yeah. markers and trolleys for books that you might yeah. not want uh, <laughs> to buy. But why wouldn't you want to buy any for books? <laughs> 
Absolutely. And I hope that you will also still have your amazing line in um, notes as to why you're popping out, because I remember that being in your shop and it's sort of like, I don't know, the school plays on or it's snowing and we're taking a day off to build a snowman. I hope you'll still have um, a good line in those anyway. We still have them up, but that's the point because folk will not be able to come right into this strange wee office in the middle of the shop. Folk have often come in and I remember one time it was a Japanese the design student. He took a photo of all these signs and he was going to include it in, I don't know, his, his dissertation or his, his, his master's back in Japan. So yeah, uh, we are in the garden gesticulate for attention. <laughs> all that. Yeah, gone to the school obstacle race. and That's it. Yeah, close due to wind. Close due to wind, yes. They better be back. You'll have to put them somewhere somewhere obvious so people can see them good well i'm going to finish just by having a wee hello with helena if i may i'm working my way up to the top of the company this is the sort of how we're doing it so helena hello um my burning question for you i suppose i've got two 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 main questions for you one is just what's it what was it what's it been like what is it like growing up in this fabulous old brilliant bookshop um it's been really interesting because With the bookshop, we obviously have the connection with the festival and with the festival, it's given me a chance to meet lots of interesting people that I normally wouldn't have the chance to meet. So I suppose that's an opportunity that a lot of other people won't get in other areas of the country. Who's some standout festival of writers and illustrators that you've met, would you say? I really enjoy, when I was younger, I really enjoyed books by Kathy Cassidy and Philip R. Dar. So when they came, I really enjoyed it um, and chatting to them after their events. When I was in primary school, I got to introduce a few people, which was really nice as well. Shoe Rayner, who comes almost every year, is a really nice author and illustrator. And I did a couple of things with him during lockdown, actually, which was really fun. But when he came, I always enjoyed doing that. And then we obviously have Big Bang Weekend as well, which is out with the festival. It's like more my area of things where scientists come and talk and I get to meet them. Well, that was something that was my other question, really, was just I know that you've got your own huge interest in the stars and in the in sort of um, astronomy. Would that be is that accurate? Tell us more about that. So my main hobby is called, well, I call it astrophotography. I mean, it can go by many different names, but it's basically setting up a rig of equipment in the garden, in the freezing cold and in the dark (laughs) and taking pictures of things that are so many millions of light years away. And then I publicise it on my YouTube channel, Helena's Astrophotography. So I put videos up on there with the sort of aspiration to inspire others to go out and do the same. And what's your uh, what's been your best capture, in your opinion? I bet you there's loads, but what what's the one where you've gone, oh, wow? That's... Um, well, my most recent ones are probably my best because I've had lots of time to sort it out being at home a lot. So my favourite one so far is probably a galaxy called the Whirlpool Galaxy. And it's like this pinkish purple spiral is one way to look at it. Um, And I got that about two weeks ago. Do check out Helena's YouTube channel. It really is quite something else. Remarkable. Thank you to her and to Joyce and to Ian. Old Bank Books is such a lovely bookshop and we can't wait to set foot inside there again very soon. And perhaps while you're there, even seek out their uh, extraordinary array of out-for-lunch signs. Wave at us, we're in the garden, etc. The best. 
Well, that's us for another episode. Thank you so much for joining us for this one. Thank you so much to Dan and to the Cochrane family. And, and of course, to you for tuning in, uh, whether it's your first time or your or many more than that. Until the next time, take good care of yourselves and bye-bye for now. <laughs>